0: James 4, 13 through 512 this morning. I'm only going to read the first part of the passage for the sake of time. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some pew Bibles there or row Bibles uh, in the seat back pocket. And the passage will be around page twelve hundred. Just go there and then go right. James four thirteen through five twelve. If you're able, please stand as this is God's holy word we're reading. (coughs) This is God's word. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have lived in luxury on the earth and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So far, the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace in this passage. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace into people who know you more fully and love you more deeply and follow you more closely day after day. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken-down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. That's not me. I'm quoting somebody here. Uh, That's the outlook of Cambridge professor, or it was the outlook of Cambridge professor and theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking. Uh, His prognosis with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, Uh, It meant that he would die in his 20s. He lived to be uh, 76 years old, in fact. I'm sure you can remember seeing photos or videos of him uh, speaking from his wheelchair about his theory of everything long after he should have succumbed to his condition. Sadly, his worldview led him to see life through the cold and calculating formula of materialism. John Lennox, professor of mathematics at Oxford University and a warm, devout Christian, uh, from his standpoint as an academic and as a Christian, uh, in his characteristically uh, inviting manner, he countered this claim. If we could say that Hawking's view was that heaven is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark, uh, John Lennox said this, atheism is a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. It's pretty good, isn't it? Atheism is a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. We hear these words maybe as believers and immediately we think, that's right. Of course, we're no fools, right? We know that heaven is real. We know that God is real. We live and worship the Lord our God. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we've been singing praise to God this morning. We're no fools, right? But what if, what if we love that idea that atheism is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark, but in the, in the light, but in the day-to-day, we're not so different. What if we sort of live that way? What if that's the kind of our outlook? Living within the horizon of our Monday to Friday 24-hour days, looking at what we see around us and not acknowledging uh, the reality of God in the day-to-day. There's another kind of atheism we need to be aware of. A uh, PCA pastor and counselor, Paul Tripp, observes the following. He says, I'm concerned with the level of functional atheism that exists in the church of Jesus Christ. Functional atheism. What does he mean by that? Well, he explains, yes, we believe that God exists, that He created the heavens and the earth, uh, that the Bible is accurate, that paradise awaits, but we often live at a functional level as if there is no God. We worry too much. We control too much. We demand too much. We regret too much. We do all these things because we have forgotten God's presence. And then Tripp asks this challenging question that I think we should all pause and consider. He says, this week, how many thoughts did you have? Words did you speak or decisions did you make that omitted the Lord from your process entirely? It's a challenging question, isn't it? I think it should wake us up a little bit. I know it wakes me up a little bit. It's, it's embarrassing, really, how easy it is to uh, be a pastor and to work for God, really, and then go about your day-to-day and oftentimes make decisions where you're forgetting God. I think we all know what that's like, don't we? I think this passage in James's letter that we're considering today was written to wake us up from this functional atheism. It was written to wake us up from the foolishness of denying God and forgetting God in our everyday lives. That's why the characteristic of humble faith we're going to look at today is this. Humble faith remembers the Lord. Humble faith remembers the Lord. I think this whole passage ties together into one unit because it addresses this problem of atheism. Practical atheism, real atheism, and James will call some people out on that. Uh, And also just the way we live in the crucible of trials and sometimes forgetting that we serve the Lord. How do we continue remembering the Lord in that? So we're going to look at three kinds of people. Three kinds of people addressed in this passage. First, the person who trusts in his own plans. Uh, Secondly, the person who thinks there won't be any consequences. And finally, the person suffering persecution. Three kinds of people, all of whom should remember the Lord. Let's think about these three kinds of people now. Look with me first at the person who trusts in his own plans. That person should remember the Lord. Look again at verse fourteen, verse 13 in chapter 4. James four thirteen and following. We read, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time. And then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, James is returning here at long last uh, to the three themes that we saw in James chapter one themes that have taken up much of his letter. Uh, These themes that humble faith shows up in our speech, humble faith shows mercy. Humble faith resists the devil by purifying itself from the world. And he now begins this series of exhortations that address additional points about humble faith. It seems to be kind of an abrupt transition, but it's really important. And it demonstrates how easy it is in the middle of the pressures of life to just forget the Lord entirely. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And here in this passage, James is challenging the functional atheist, the one who says, I know what I'm going to do, I have a plan to do it, and this is, in fact, what I'm going to do. Who among us hasn't done that? Who among us doesn't know what it's like to have a plan? We've decided, this is what I'm going to do. Can you remember a time when you knew what you were going to do, Uh, but then you had that plan upended by God's providence? That plan was completely rearranged. It didn't happen. I know I've been there. I remember a moment uh, when I was sure, uh, this is it. I'm going to leave the church where I've been serving in church planting as a worship leader, and I'm going to begin my studies in seminary. Uh, I knew what seminary I wanted to attend, and I sort of knew how I was going to put those studies to use in ministry, and a friend of mine was all set to come and take over for me as the the music leader at this church. It was a perfect plan. We had it all worked out, I was excited because I would finally fulfill this plan that I had made, but then in God's providence, this friend was called to lead music at a church in another state. I thought, what now? I confess I didn't have a great opinion of my friend in the moment. It was kind of like that scene from the Western movie Tombstone, (laughs) well, bye, right? (laughs) What do I do now? I remember being really frustrated. Uh, It took more than a year to pick up and head to seminary. I was thinking, God, I don't know if you're tracking, but I had a plan here. Have you ever been there? Have you ever said, hey, Lord, I thought I had a plan worked out for this. What is going on? My plans were put on hold, but I learned so much through the process. My friend and I are good, by the way. We're good now. Um, It was his birthday yesterday. And uh, I learned a lot through the process. You know, I went to a different seminary. I ended up going to a Presbyterian seminary. I ended up being involved in uh, ministries that I never thought I would be involved in. The Lord was directing our steps. If I hadn't had that change of plans, I might not be standing here preaching this sermon. Uh, The Lord is the one who directs our steps, even when we think we have a plan. That's why James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's really great. Uh, James really doesn't have an original bone in his body. Uh, It's a great quality for a preacher. Originality is not a great quality in an apostle or a preacher. Uh, James is just speaking Jesus' words after him. That's all he does. He's just speaking what his older brother Jesus already said. He says, just look at him and listen to what he says. Where does Jesus say this? Remember the parable of Luke 12. Jesus said, This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The one who does not take God into account as he pursues the pleasures and the wealth and the riches of this world. Humble faith remembers the Lord. Humble faith remembers the Lord in all of our plans and everything we do, remembering his will and his sovereign control over all things. So we're looking at three kinds of people in this passage that James addresses. That was the first person. The one who trusts in his own plans should remember the Lord. A second kind of person that James addresses. The person who thinks there won't be any consequences needs to remember the Lord. Look with me now at James five, one through six. James five, one to six. So many wonderfully encouraging passages this morning. This is this is a severe warning. of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Weep and howl. "Klausate o in Greek. Kids, do you know what it's called when a word sounds like what it means? You know the word? I know someone knows it. Onomatopoeia, right? When it sounds like what it means. Clausate allo lusontes, it's blubbering. Weep and howl doesn't quite sound the same. Weep and wail, maybe in English. Weep and wail. Can you hear it? Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming upon you. This will not end well for this person. Here, James is clearly addressing an unconverted audience now. All grace and repentance is excluded. It's available, of course, to anyone who turns to Christ by faith, but James is describing here the final outcome of those who persist in this evil oppression of God's people. They should weep and wail because it's not going to end well for them. Earlier in James 1, he's talked to the rich, and there's debate as to whether in James 1 he's referring to believers of means or mean unbelievers. I think it's believers of means in chapter 1, but here it's mean unbelievers, people who are oppressing God's people. That's who's in his sights, and he's firing this strong prophetic condemning shot uh, right at their wickedness, and it's devastating. The situation is really specific to the first reader, so it may be hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes. Uh, we don't know exactly or personally, you know, what James is addressing, what's actually happening, what are these rich people doing, well, it seems that they were committing profound injustice as it related to laborers. Uh, this was probably ethnic or racial injustice and injustice against the lower class in that culture in particular as people had been dispersed into all of these nations. And then these people who are new, displaced, and in this uh, new country are then being oppressed by these wicked, wicked rulers or landlords, I guess you could call them injustice in which the rich are oppressing the poor, particularly the poor into which these Jewish people, many of whom are now Christians and believers in Jesus, have been dispersed. What does James say about it? Their riches are rotten, however rich they think they are. He's painting this vivid picture like he often does. Their clothes are moth-ridden, ragged and full of holes, no matter how much wealth they think they have. Their gold is silver and rusty and that rust will be a witness against them on the final day. It will testify against them and it will consume their flesh like fire. Again, James is just speaking Jesus' words after him. Matthew 6, 19-20 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's a word to members of the kingdom, but James here is facing off with those who oppress the kingdom of Christ and oppress Christians here. And James is speaking with this prophetic fire in his voice, the voice of a prosecuting attorney of the law of God saying, you are guilty, and here's what is coming if you don't repent. He's speaking here to the person who thinks there won't be any consequences, the atheist who lives as though God is not seeing what he's doing. They're living in luxury at the expense of others. This life of unmitigated and unjust ease at the expense of other people. They have condemned and perhaps really murdered the righteous person. James says, he does not resist you. And I think we see a little bit of Jesus in this. Uh, James Matir comments, I think, helpfully. It is, in fact, surely impossible to read the words, killed. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Without the lone and wonderful figure of the Lord Jesus coming before the eyes of the mind, he is preeminently the righteous one. His response of non-resistance is at one and the same time the most demanding example and the sweetest consolation in times of oppression. Isn't that helpful? When we are oppressed, we, we resist this non-resistance that Jesus modeled. It's both the most demanding example and the most uh, sweet consolation when we we're going through this. If you look at your life and you recognize that you're someone who rejects God, you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe even without overtly doing so, you're someone who has lived against God's people. Maybe that's a family member. Maybe that's a coworker, uh, But you find yourself here today Um, the words of Jesus Christ to Saul on the road to Damascus are words you need to hear. Acts 9, 3-4, Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why why are you persecuting me? It's interesting, the prophet Isaiah said that Jesus like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's worth noting, friends, that Jesus did not open his mouth in protest when he was persecuted. But he does open his mouth in protest when people are oppressing his people, when someone is persecuting his beloved children. Incredibly, he doesn't just say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that encouraging? when these first readers of James are being oppressed by these wicked bosses and landlords, Jesus stands with them. He is being persecuted alongside them because they are his. So humble faith remembers the Lord. And the words of James to you, if you don't think there will be a reckoning one day, if you don't think there will be a final judgment, is that you need to remember the Lord. It's him you're against. It's him you're against. You need to hear the voice of the silent Lamb of God who suffered silently every injustice to redeem his people. Yet that same silent Lamb speaks through James today, telling you to weep and wail for the miseries coming upon you. The answer to that is to come to Jesus by faith. Come to him by faith. We've seen two kinds of people so far. First, the person who trusts in his own plans. Secondly, the person who thinks there won't be any consequences. Finally, let's Think about the person suffering persecution. Uh, look with me again at James chapter 5, verse 7 and following. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There's a gentle change of tone here, if you noticed, and rightly so. He's no longer talking to the proud person who boasts in his own plans for getting the Lord. That person is told to look up. He's no longer talking about the unjust, wicked person who is oppressing God's people. That person is told to watch out. Now he's talking to the person who is suffering persecution because he believes in Jesus. That person is told, and maybe you're that person, and you need to hear it. He's told, hold out hope. There's this risk we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, this risk of functional atheism. And it comes out here again. Uh, The dark clouds of trial can cause you not to remember the Lord or to see his hand at work. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He's nothing if not Christ-centered throughout this letter, despite what some people have said. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Jesus is coming. Be patient and hold out hope in that as you suffer. The Apostle Peter takes uh, the same kind of second coming perspective to people who are suffering persecution and hardship. Maybe you've read it in 1 Peter 1. After talking about this incredible inheritance that awaits us, Peter says, "...in this you rejoice." Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see that common thread there? Words to people suffering persecution? Hold out hope. Jesus is coming again. That's the hope of the Christian faith. Christ has died Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Hold out hope. Remember the Lord. Going back to James, uh, James compares the patience of the prophets and all who have patiently suffered under persecution uh, like a good preacher with better illustrations than me. He goes to the world of, of agriculture again. He goes to the natural world. Listen to what he says. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early And the late rains, you also be patient. This perspective of a coming judgment, uh, it's coming however slow it seems. And for the person being persecuted, the judgment is one of hope. Justice is coming. That's the word that these persecuted Christians are hearing. It's not a word of hope to those who persecute them, but justice is coming. Hold out hope for it. It may take a long time, just like a farmer waits for his harvest. But in the middle of our waiting, James again reminds us about our words and our works. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Kids, and those of you who used to be kids, uh, was there ever a time when you were doing something that you shouldn't have been doing? Maybe you were pestering your brother and sister, you were just being unrelentless, and then uh, you heard mom or dad knocking at the door? Remember what you felt in that moment? That's what these words are supposed to do for us. If you were the one being a brat, you stopped in your tracks because you knew you were guilty. If you were the one being wailed on, you said, yes, the cavalry is here. (laughs) Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. And behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is a good judge. If you run to him by faith, Uh, Even if sometimes you're the one guilty of being a brat, he welcomes you. He forgives you. But if you're someone who hasn't run to Jesus by faith, if you're one of the people wailing on God's children, persecuting them, you have to hear those words. It's a terrible warning. The judge is standing at the door. So, in light of this judgment that's coming, I want to look with you uh, for a moment at verse 12. Um, I think it fits with this point about not grumbling because the judge is at the door. Where verse 12 fits, whether that's here in our passage or as a standalone statement James is making, or maybe it fits better with what follows, it's really anybody's guess. Nobody really knows for sure. I don't know if you knew, but in your study Bibles where there's an outline that shows you like a Roman numeral outline of the book, that's just a guess. Uh, We didn't get a a, a Roman numeral outline of these letters. But I think it fits well with what we're looking at here. Making the case for verse 12 as a part of our passage uh, Matthieu points out, characteristically, uh, James is just continuing to hammer home the way our speech reveals our humble faith or the lack thereof. Words and works are a big deal to James. Our speech is a barometer of our spiritual maturity and of our faith. James quotes Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says in verse 12 But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The judge is at the door. Judgment is coming. And our words and our works, or rather our words as part of the whole uh, package of what we do as Christians, they they don't earn our redemption, but they show that we have been redeemed. They vindicate, as we've said, our faith. Our words matter in light of the coming judgment. Our words show that we remember the Lord. When we say if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Our words show that we remember the Lord if we're patient without grumbling against our brothers and sisters. And our words show that we remember the Lord when instead of invoking the Lord's name to give weight to our promises, we realize that that puts the Lord in a place He shouldn't be. Instead, we trust His plan and we just say, yes, I will do this and no, I won't do that. Not twisting the Lord's arm, to give weight to our promises, instead trusting in his will and his authority and his sovereign plan. Well, James gives one final example uh, to encourage us to persevere in patience. Uh, We heard this story read already this morning, uh, the story of Job. James says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. The patience of Job, right? You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You heard the story read in Job chapter 1. Job saw his entire life melt before his eyes. Can you even imagine it? It's gut-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching. Who could keep the faith through such incredible trials? Maybe you've seen your life melt before your eyes especially due to the sin of others, the sin of those who don't remember the Lord. And you wonder what to do. What do you do when your life melts before your eyes like this? Well, Job remembers the Lord, that he is compassionate and merciful. Job could yet say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So let me ask you today, it's not easy, but can you remember the Lord in the trials you're going through? Can you remember the Lord and trust Him? Can you remember to say in the midst of trials, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that? I will celebrate 30 years of marriage to my beloved husband or wife. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. I will retire at the age of X with a solid portfolio. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. I will have a healthy child with no complications, no birth defects. No unexpected challenges. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. I will see my family walk with Jesus their whole lives. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Can you still say in that moment, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. Jesus is acquainted with your grief, the righteous person who did not resist but entrusted himself in patience to the Father's perfect plan. Jesus sat crying in a garden on the brink of brutal death and agony for you. And he cried out, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I end just reflecting on that verse for a moment. It's one final encouragement to you in the midst of your struggle to persevere and to remember the Lord in hardship and pain and loss, persecution even. Uh, Remembering the Lord is the right thing to do, but it's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to remember him. So often we fail to do it, but be encouraged by this. Jesus didn't fail to remember. He did it for you. He remained steadfast and he was blessed. He did the Father's will all the way to the cross and all the way to the throne for you. He did all of this so that you can in this life remain steadfast, remembering the Lord. That You can do so even when you fall, knowing you'll be picked back up again, not by your own faithfulness, but by the faithful Savior who doesn't let go of you. The judge is standing at the door, but that judge is your friend. That judge is your friend if you've run to him by faith. The Lord is compassionate And merciful to all who believe. Humble faith remembers the Lord and lives out of that hope in remembering him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray every Sunday, Your will be done, but so often we don't remember You in the day to day. Make us a people who look up and remember You. And if there's someone here today who stands against God's people, maybe they're here, but they're not for You and they're not for Your people. Cause them to remember the Lord, to remember that the judge is standing at the door, and be with your people today suffering persecution or oppression or the acts of sinful people against them, whether that's here at Heritage or our brothers and sisters around the world. Cause us all to hold out hope in the one who always did what was right, so that even in the most excruciating of circumstances, we might do what is right and remember you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.